Well, unless you're living under a bridge somewhere, uh, dwelling in a cave, uh, the climate and the earth are changing. Uh, there's sweltering records of heat in various parts of the world. We have hurricanes and cyclones that are destroying the coastlines. Tornadoes are ripping across much of our country and other countries, destroying towns and killing people. Floodwaters are rising. Fires are raging. Droughts are killing the crops. Snowfall is declining. Pollution is choking the life out of much of the plants. And many species are dying out. You say, well, what's going on? What's happening? We see these things. Well, the reason for the decay and decline uh, really comes to us by way of the Word of God as we see what he's doing with this blue planet that we're living on. Some would cry out, well, climate change. It's clearly, it's climate change caused by man, greenhouse gases. And it's possible that some of our struggles that we're going through might be uh, greenhouse related. I don't know. It's possible that uh, even though that might be playing a small part, it's bigger than that. And that's what I want us to see in today's passage. What's going on around us on this blue marble is this. This is part of God's plan of redemption. What you're seeing and experiencing is part of his redemptive plan for us. And so it's important that we occasionally turn to the word of God and we begin to see what his, what his plan is. And one of the things we need to do as, as Christians is we need to have a biblical worldview. So when we see things like the planet changing, we, we, we see uh, adjustments in the environment. Where do we go for our answers? Where, where do we go for, to find meaning? And, and the answer is we put on the spectacles of God's Word, and we look through the, the spectacles of truth, and hopefully come away with a biblical worldview. Today, as we open our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8, we find the, uh, the ultimate cause of decay in the world. It's one that stands before us and is a witness of the sin that came into this world back in the book of Genesis and the death that we all experience today. It's one that brings us an amazing vista of the glory that lies ahead. There's a lot here in this verse. It's one that points us to the glorious gospel that brings redemption not only to us, but brings redemption to, to the very creation itself. Now last time, if you were with us, we, we saw that the Christian life, this side of eternity... It is, is a pathway. It's a straight and narrow path. And we saw that this, path, this pathway is lined with suffering. That's normative Christianity 101. Between here and glory, suffering. Between here and glory, trials. And God has a purpose for that. If you thought when you became a Christian everything was going to be hunky-dory, that's, that's not it. In fact, that, that's usually when the suffering, <laughs> suffering begins. And God has given us suffering as a gift. You know, one of the things it does for us is it humbles us. It humbles pride that's within every one of us. The other thing it does is trials and tribulations, they, they bring up our faith and build our faith and strengthens, strengthens us in our relationship to God. 
trials and suffering in your life also is one of the means that God uses to prune you of sin and uh, in the worldliness that marks your life. I mean, if everything was just wonderful between here and heaven, can you imagine what our spiritual lives would look like? But God in His wisdom has brought suffering and trials to perfect us in the very image of Christ. One of the things it does, it brings compassion to us. You know, those of us who have suffered, those of us who have gone through trials and tribulations, aren't, aren't, aren't we in a better position than to be compassionate toward those who go through similar trials and similar tri- tribulations? You know, I, I, I had counseled with many people about prodigal children. Uh, and then one day God gave us a prodigal child. And all of a sudden my counseling and my understanding and my compassion just radically changed. And I realized what a heart heartthrob that is for, for, for parents. When, when, when a child that you've raised in, in, in the Lord goes off the rails and go, goes astray. Uh, in fact, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says, Afflictions add to the saint's glory. The more the diamond is cut, the more it sparkles. The heavier the saint's cross, the heavier will be his crown. I guess this is a very succinct way of describing the relationship between suffering and glory. And here's the good news. God doesn't just abandon us along the road and just leave us to ourselves to, to suffer all the way to heaven. But he also encourages us along the way so that we can endure the suffering of this life. You know, one way is by giving us a, a biblical perspective. That's, that's what we're going to look at today is a biblical perspective of suffering and, 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 and where it fits into our life and the glory that lies ahead. You know, where it fits into God's big picture. We saw last week that Paul encourages us with, with a contrast. Remember verse 18, we just read it. For I consider, this should encourage us, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, here, here's a wonderful contrast to help you, to encourage you when you're going through times of trial and you're going through times of suffering. Next time you face tribulation, remember verse 18, 4. And by the way, I want you to see something here because 4 is being repeated several times throughout this chapter. There's a whole pearl, a whole string of 4s that, that, that are going to follow. Verse 18 begins with the word what? 4. Verse 19 begins with the word 4. Verse 20 begins with the word 4. Verse 22 begins with the word... I'm waiting for someone to have a different translation here. Uh, Verse 24 begins with the word 4. And what you have here is verse 18. In other words, the the trials we're going through are nothing compared to the glory that lies ahead. And then each one of the 4s that follow it are building up and strengthening the argument that he just made in verse 18. Uh, the glory that awaits us far outshadows our current suffering in this life. They're nothing more than, a, than an eye drop compared to the ocean of glory that's going to be ours one day. So let's launch into verse 19 and look at uh, kind of an explanation for that he's going to give us to, to bolster the, this, this thought of God's glory. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. There's our four again. It's building now on what he just said in verse 18. 
it advances the argument that he just made in verse 18, that the present suffering is nothing compared to the heavenly glory that lies ahead. And then our question then would be, then how do we endure on this, this life of suffering until the day that we enter into glory? And he's going to tell us it's not by grinning and bearing it and just, you know, toughing it up and cowboying our way through to, uh, to eternity. Instead, what he does is he motivates us to endure by giving us a picture of the future glory that lies ahead. And that future picture is the picture of creation. So there, there's something about creation that will teach us and show us how it is we're to endure suffering until the day of glory. Now, he's going to do so by way of a figure of speech that we sometimes call personification. And for those of you who are English majors, a personification is what? It's taking an inanimate object, creation, a chair, a pulpit, and giving it attributes of life. Uh, taking an inanimate object and, and making it animate and as if it was alive, as if it was a person. And there's many uh, personifications in, in the Scriptures. I know in Psalm 98.8 is a good example. Let the floods clap their hands. So when's the last time you saw the floods clap their hands? Well, I never saw the... But there's something being communicated that we need to know. And uh, so it's giving life to the flood. Let the hills sing. You know, I haven't heard any songs yet coming from the hills, but let the hills sing. Genesis 4.10. And the Lord said, What have you done? This is Cain and Abel. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So, I mean, you've heard once someone shed their blood and they died, their blood doesn't actually cry out and, and say words, but they do testify as to what happened. So here he's giving us the, the inanimate object to teach us something spiritually by way of personification, and it's, it's the creation. We see that in verse 19. It's creation. And here's the question. What is creation? What creation is it referring to here? Well, I, I believe that we might understand creation here is all the world that's around us. You could even extend it out to the universe, but specifically the world around us minus angels and people. We're talking about the mountains. We're talking about the stars. We're talking about deserts and oceans, plants and trees, creeping creatures, the animal world, the fish world, uh, all this in the sea. We were in the Niehaus house the other, the other day, and they took us way up uh, on Jim Mountain. It was what a blessing that was. And so we're going around on this uh, Polaris, and just the terrain changes suddenly, and all of a sudden you've you got rocks and everything and volcanic displays, and, and then you go around the corner. It's, it's like a ride at Disneyland. You, know, you go around the corner, and now all of a sudden you're in another area, and all these flowers, these wildflowers, yellow wild, yellow wildflowers, white wildflowers, uh, wild uh, roses, right? We saw some wild roses. Just absolutely gorgeous. It was, it was like all of creation is just shouting out how glorious it truly is. Even little hummingbirds flying around. You, there's one point where you can actually see the reservoir almost to Yellowstone. I mean, one panoramic view of just the whole valley there. But the creation that's being described here 
is a creation minus people. And it's a creation minus angels. Why? Because the way he describes creation, he's describing a creation as longing to see the revealing of the sons of God. Well, if we're sons of God, that would be something we'd be longing to see other sons of God being glorified. And it's not unbelievers, because unbelievers, they don't have a future redemption to look forward to, like he's talking about here with creation. It's not angels, because angels are not going to have a redemption. They're not redeemed. What about demons? doesn't include demons because uh, not only do they have no future redemption, they, they were gonna, all they have to look forward to is the lake of fire. So what we have is, is creation, the planet and all the animals and, and all, the, all the wildlife, all around us, minus angels and people. Therefore, creation, all of God's creative order, what's it doing? It's waiting. Do you see that? It's waiting with eager longing. Paul gives the living picture of all creation, eagerly waiting. It's cra- the word here is craning its neck. It's like, you know, you have a fence in your backyard and it's about six feet high. It's a little bit over, you know, you see you're on your tiptoes. You're looking over and you're seeing what's on the other side. You're peering ahead to see what's there. You want to get a peek of something that lies ahead. You want to get a glimpse of something that's before you. And uh, that's what creation is doing. It's waiting. It's eagerly longing for something. And what's it looking for? Well, for the revealing of the sons of God. It's anticipating, creation that is, it's anticipating the day when Christ is going to return and all those who are in Christ are going to be raised from the dead. We're going to be in all of our glorified bodies Entering into the very presence of Christ forever, the, the, you know, where they're going to creation's listening for the, the shout of the archangel and, and, and the blowing of the trumpet, and the day when Christ will return in all of His glory. It's it's trying to see that day somewhere in the future. It wants a glimpse of that and that day when the Son of God will raise up all those who are in Christ to glorified bodies. It's waiting to see that. And it's on its tiptoes. It's really waiting to see a fulfillment of 1 Thessalonians 4.16, where Paul writes, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so here, here creation is on its tiptoes, looking for that day, waiting for that day. When the true sons of God will be revealed. That day when you'll know and they'll know for sure who's a Christian and who isn't a Christian. Creation will realize that uh, they'll see you in all of your radiance, those of you who are in Christ, in all of your glory. And what's implied in this passage is this, is that right now creation can't quite discern those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. Those who have received the redemption of Christ and those who have not. And... And the reason I say that is because they're waiting for the day with expectancy to see who is going to be those who are glorified. And I was thinking because of the context here being struggles, trials, tribulations, it well could be that what Paul's saying is this. As Christians, we suffer just like the non-Christians do. We go through the same adversities and even more so than they do. 
And therefore, you can't just look at that and say, okay, well, they're not suffering, and they are. They're believers. They're not. Christians get COVID. Non-Christians get COVID. Christians lose their jobs. Non-Christians lose their jobs. Christians suffer. Non-world, non-believers suffer. But in that day, when Christ returns, creation is going to stand back and witness that who are those who are going to receive all the glory of God. It's going to be the elect. Until then, the creation is anxiously waiting, looking, craning its neck, on its tiptoes, in anticipation for that great glory to come. All creation is longing for that day, eagerly waiting. So here's a question for you. Why would creation... Of course, we're talking about an inanimate object here. We're putting life in something that is lifeless. But why is it that creation would be waiting expectantly for us to receive all the glory that is ours in Christ? Why would it care? Why is a creation so eagerly waiting? And the answer, I believe, is because uh, your salvation is vitally linked to its salvation. Do you see that? Your glorification is vitally linked to, really, the glorification or the salvation that God's going to bring to all of creation itself. You're leading the way. So they're watching and waiting for you. And when they see you receive your glorified body, they know it's time. We're going to be redeemed. Creation's going to be redeemed. Why is the creation is eager for salvation? I mean, why is it? I mean, does, does creation need to be saved? Like we need to be saved? Does a creation sin? What happened to it? Why does it need to be redeemed? I mean, didn't God create the heavens and the earth? And when He got all done, didn't He say they were all good? And then He stood back and said, well, that's very good. So why does it need to be redeemed, creation? How did it become sick? How did it become polluted? How did it decay? And uh, what's the answer? Creation fell when man fell. It was never the same after that. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So the, the creation, that's all, everything minus people and angels, was subjected to futility. Again, see the four, it's building its argument. Eight, you know, 19 on, on 18, now 20 on 19. He's adding to the, the argument. Because, you see, creation was subjected to futility. To what? To futility. In other words, it no longer could carry out the purpose for which God designed it. God created the heavens and the earth, and He stood back and declared that it was all good. But, but now what's happened, the, the, the curse came upon all of creation, and it's no longer able to fulfill all the purposes for which God designed it. It's in futility. Now, I want you to put your sanctified imagination cap on, and, uh, you know, I don't want to say we're going to add to the Word of God, but we, we do, I think, in, in these areas, it, it's helpful to, to think, well, what does that mean? 
Well, when God created the heavens and the earth, the, all of creation, would you say that it was perfect? It's not a trick question, but yeah, it was it was perfect. Uh, it was it was it was it was perfect to fulfill every purpose for which God designed creation. So that tells me, with my sanctified imagination cap on, there were no blood-sucking mosquitoes in the Garden of Eden. I mean, imagine, I mean, in some way, this is, you know, animals are not devouring one another. There's no death. So in creation, you have, you know, lambs and you have lions out in the field rolling around and playing with each other and having a good old time. None of the animals preyed on one another. There was no death. There were no weeds choking out the plants. There were no hurricanes blowing through. No tornadoes ripping it apart. It was beautiful. It was perfect. Exactly the way God designed it. I mean, he set the thermostat at 72 degrees. Plus or minus. And they had all the fruits and the nuts you could eat. Now, I know it's, it's hard for us to understand how this could be so perfect without ribeye steaks. But this is how God created it. And the crops were bountiful, beautiful f- fruit and vegetables sometimes. But something happened. Something happened. It became subjected to futility. Suddenly it became... Uh, subject to decay, subject to futility, emptiness, worthlessness. Weeds began to grow, began to choke out all the, the, the plants. Drought, you know, whatever the source of, of water stopped, bringing death. Instead of a garden, it turned into a wasteland. Do you realize where the, the Garden of Eden is or was? The Bible tells us. It gives us a map, and it says where what? Two rivers. Yeah, you're, tigers and Euphrates. It's right there. Now, there's people that actually go out and think they can find the Garden of Eden today, but they haven't read Romans 8. I mean, there, there's actually, you know, archaeologists going, I wonder where the Garden of Eden is. You know, they can find the Garden of Eden. It's gone. It's a wasteland. It's like the Badlands out here, you know, where, where there's nothing. And why? Because it became subject to futility. We'll say, well, how did it get that way? What happened? Well, Paul adds, well, it wasn't willingly. It wasn't like something, creation said, oh, I did something wrong. or I. No, there was nothing in creation that caused this. In some way, creation was a victim. But because of him who subjected it. Now we've got to go to the pronoun him and Find the antecedent. And, and, and who is Paul talking about? Who, would, who is the him who subjected all of creation to futility? Well, it doesn't tell us exactly. I know that, uh, oh, I do want to point out that this subjected it is, is an aorist tense. And I think that's important for us to realize that one day creation was perfect. Then something happened, and it was subjected to futility at a point in time, not over a period of time, not a process, not that it slowly decayed, but at one point in time, it became futile. 
not to become unfutile again until God should change it. And so was, well, was it Adam that did this? Was it Adam that subjected the creation to futility when he sinned? Or was it God himself that subjected it to, to him? And I believe the best answer to that is, is God himself is the one who subjected it to futility. Now, it was a consequence, obviously, of the fall caused by Adam. But it was a plague God brought upon creation. It was a curse that God brought upon creation. Now, if we look at the analogy of Scripture, Scripture comparing Scripture with Scripture, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we have to open up our Bibles in the New Testament to Romans chapter 8, kind of put these two events together to really, really understand what it is that took place. How is it that creation became uh, futile, subjected to futility? Because I don't believe you can understand Romans 8 without understanding Romans chapter 3. And that's the consequences of the fall of, uh, of Adam. Now, remember, if you're with us through Romans, Adam was the what? Representative head of, our, of all people. He was our federal head of the human race. So we saw that whatever would happen to Adam happened to us. He was our representative head. It's like you'd send somebody to Washington, D.C. to be our representative head. What they decide for us applies to, to us. And so Adam sinned, we sinned. Remember, we saw the imputation of sin. He sinned, we sinned. He died. Romans 5 says, we died. Adam sinned, we died. And what we're seeing here is, but there was a broader consequence to Adam's sin than just you and me and humanity. It spilled over into what? Creation itself because of his sin. You know, if you look, if, you, if, you, if your Bibles are open to Genesis 3, if you look at verse 14, remember how God brings a curse upon the man, a curse upon the woman. He brings a curse upon Satan. And in verse 14 it says, here's the curse upon the serpent. Uh, describes a curse on the world around us. In verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, here's his curse, because you have done this, cursed are you above the livestock and above all beasts of the field or the belly, on the belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now it's implied there that uh, the livestock are going are, are to be cursed and the beasts are going to be cursed, but you're going to be cursed above them. So that's implied in verse 14. In verse 17 to Adam, he says this. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you, will, you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And so here's the curse upon creation. I mean, Adam's being sent out. He's got to go out and, you know, bale hay, right, and make, make, make a living at it, and it's not going to be easy. You know, you're going to have, you're going to have thorns, and you're going to have thistles, and it's going to be labor. It's not going to be a stroll through the garden like it was at one time. 
And so because of Adam's sin, a curse came upon the whole world, all of, all of creation. The earth fell when, when Adam fell. Before the fall of Adam and Eve, I was thinking they would just stroll through the garden. You know, I'd put your imagination on it, your hat on again, and you'd go through the garden. and It's like a Sunday buffet every day. I mean, you know, there's no bailing and trying to get rid of the weeds and everything. Oh, here's a pomegranate and, you know, here's an apple or whatever. You know, and just nuts and whatever you, they delighted in. It was just there in all of its beauty. But that all came to an end. Sin came. The earth was cursed. And it's cursed today. And it's going to remain cursed until the day that Christ returns. No wonder all of creation is on its tiptoes looking and waiting for the day when Christ returns in hopes that this will be their day of redemption. The earth will be changed. Now, I think it's important that we see what this means because today's decay, today's pollution, today's environmental disasters that we hear about all the time, is not exclusively the plague of hydrocarbons. It's not the plague of man. This is the plague of God. This is judgment upon all of creation. And so if we're thinking biblically as Christians, we're going to look at the world biblically and realize that no man or no nation can really undo all that God created. They can be a part of it, but it's not... It, 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 it takes our eyes off of the one who brought the plague, and that is God himself. Plague not only in our hearts, but spread across the land and spread across the whole world, and I believe in some way, maybe throughout the whole universe. Here's the good news. The God who brings curses is the same God who brings blessings. And uh, he brings reconciliation, and he brings restoration, and he brings renewal. And so, yes, God subjected it to futility, but notice those two words that he adds right after that in our verse, in hope. We don't want to skip those. Because, yeah, there's, 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 there's suffering, there's futility, there's judgment, but then there's hope. And the hope is that there's a salvation coming for all of creation. It one day will be free from the curse. It will be liberated. There's a time coming, a future salvation that's coming, where all of creation will be liberated from this curse that's upon it. So it's not only going to reverse the, the curse in, in, in our lives as believers, but also reverse the curse that's active in, in creation around us. And think about this. So when that day comes and, and God's going to change it all for, the, for creation, He's not going to bring it back to where it was before the fall. Because what He's going to bring is even greater than that. Creation's going to actually be, be better than that. It's like our salvation. It's not like we're going to be like Adam and Eve walking around the earth. We're, we're going to have glorified bodies. We're going to be like Christ. So we're, we're actually going to be in our glorious state greater than we were before Adam fell. And what I find here is in that same chapter of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that's where the hope begins. In the midst of all these cursings and all these plagues coming upon mankind and upon creation itself, 
There's a promise and a hope in verse 15. And I believe Paul's pointing us to that. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so here's the very first prophetic promise of a coming Savior. There's the hope that was given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Creation cursed? Yes. Judgment upon creation? Yes. Good news? Yes. But there's hope. And the hope is, that's why they're creening and looking for the coming of the Savior. He, Christ, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you, Satan, will bruise his heel. He will be victorious over you. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, will enter into this world as a man. Uh, He will come and he's perfectly keep the law. He will be nailed to a cross. He will pay the, 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 the price, take the wrath that we all deserve, and take that wrath and bring salvation to us. But I see it doesn't just stop with our salvation. There's liberation that goes further, verse 21. That, that or because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what creation is looking for. That's what creation is anticipating. That's why it's on its tiptoes. It's waiting for its salvation. They know. I mean, it's creation, I understand, but it's figurative. There's a coming day, and it will be set free from its bondage and its pollution. On that day, all creation will be set free from its corruption. And so this gives us a worldview to understand a world that we live in. Everything around us, keep this in mind as believers, we're looking at the world and, and all of creation. Everything around us has been corrupted by the fall. Even the lilies of the field, even the animals out in, in the field, everything in the world has been brought to futility because of Adam. What about right now? Well, we, we live in the not yet. And in the not yet, we see in verse 22, uh, it's still that way. It was that way when, they, when it was corrupted, and it's still corrupt today. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's our new four. four. Building again is argument. The whole creation, without exception, is groaning. Without exception, all the pains and the curse from the curse that it's experiencing. Isaiah saw this. He spoke of it in 24.4. He says, The earth mourns and withers. The world languages and withers. The highest people of the earth language, languish. And I want you to see something here because he's not talking about a part of creation suffers and the rest of it's okay. He's talking about all of creation. He's not saying, you know, well, Rock Springs. I mean, they got cursed. But Cody, Wyoming, we, we, we somehow escaped the curse. We got the, we're in the pretty part of the state. And he's not saying that. You know, he's not saying, oh, well, the desert, you know, all that desert land. No one can live there. He cursed the desert. Ah, but there's Tahiti. And there's paradise on earth. No, even, even Cody. 
has been cursed. Even Tahiti has been cursed. The whole creation groans. And it's groaning together. It's almost like there's a symphony going on. And so, you know, the creation in Tahiti and, and Cody and Rock Springs are all getting together and one loud voice groaning. They're feeling the pains and the suffering that it's going through because of the fall. All the lands, all the oceans, all the living creatures uniting together in one loud corporate groan. And it's, in a sense, so bad, it says it's in the pains of child, childbirth till now. You know, if you've been outside a maternity ward, you, you hear the, the, the groaning, the pains of childbirth. And that, that's how intense. And this has been going on from Genesis 3 to July 24, 2022. It's been one continuous, loud groan from creation. In fact, Paul likens it to childbirth. And if that's the case, taking that imagery, that means the closer we're getting to Christ coming, the greater the what? The greater the pain, right? The shorter the contractions are between each other, the louder it gets. The groaning gets louder right before Christ returns. Now, it's intensifying. You see how the biblical worldview is contrary to the current modern view about creation? about the environment, about what's going on in the world around us. Uh, the evolutionists tell us that, you know, everything's getting better. You know, man's getting stronger, and man's getting smarter, and everything's getting better. Then you put your, t- you know, your, your, your telescope up or your, 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 your rosy glasses. You look at the creation, though, isn't getting better. It's getting worse. I mean, the environment, I mean, the environmentalists would argue and say, wait a minute, no, the environment's getting worse. And they tell us, you know, if we could just get rid of fossil fuels, all of creation would be right back where it was, perfect again. Do you realize the futility of that argument? To think that man could do anything in such a way that's going to reverse the curse of Almighty God upon creation itself? I mean, we're called to be good stewards, and we can have an impact, obviously, on creation, and, and, and that's, that's part of our calling as Christians. But on the other hand, to think that, that we could somehow reverse the curse by passing a law, you know, Green New Deal, we'll, we'll just vote on it. And all, the hurricanes will go away, tornadoes will stop, there'll be no more floods. Can you imagine this? And this is what they're telling us. I mean, I, I heard one guy that's pretty high up in, 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 in the cabinet say, you know, we only have 10 more years, and it's all coming to an end. Well, we got the book. We know how it's going to come to an end. And I was thinking about that because this, this person's on, on the cabinet, and he was saying, we only have 10 more years. If we don't go all electric in 10 years, we're gone. We're done. This whole, this whole thing's going to come to an end. And then I was thinking about that. It just hit me this morning. I, I had to add this note here because it just hit me this morning as I was thinking about that. What, it, what, what, what they're saying is this. They're testifying of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in their ignorance. But when they say that in 10 years from now it's all coming to an end, it is going to come to an end. Now, we don't know when, but they're realizing, they're able to see enough in their fallen 
thinking that it's all going to come to an end. And then Christ is going to come, and when Christ comes, this is all going to be what? Restored. And so they're blindly announcing. Every time, next time you hear a politician say, in five more years, you know, it's all going to come to an end. Think of this. Oh, they're announcing the birth, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they don't even know it. Why? Because God cursed the creation. First, God did it for our good. Why did he curse the earth? Do you ever think about that? They didn't do anything. You know, it was just the earth. Didn't sin. It was just there. Well, here's a couple things to think about. First, God did, did it, I believe, for our good. The reason why God cursed the earth is for our own good. So that we would know what sin is. We see life birth. We see life death. People die. Every time something dies in creation, it's a reminder to us of the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so in a, in a very indirect way, it, it points us to a Savior because He's the only one that can free us up. So it has a redemptive purpose behind it, pointing us to Christ. There's only one that can save. You know, the AOC can't save us with a Green New Deal. I don't care how much she pounds the, the, her desk. God can. And God will because God's promised to redeem this earth. And He's the only one that can do that. He did what's impossible with man. And so it calls us to come to Christ and to trust in Him and not trust in ourselves. Secondly, it's a reminder that no matter how glorious the earth is, no matter how attractive this creation is to you, how alluring it is to you, the eternal glorious state is going to be far better. We need to remind ourselves of that regularly. You know, we, Mary subscribes to a couple of these travel magazines that come to our house, and uh, you know they, they, they promote travel to the beaches, and you, know, you open up the beautiful pictures of the white sand and the waves, and you know, wow, isn't that, I want to be there. How glorious. And I don't care how glorious this creation is, what corner of it you find yourself in, the glory in the presence of Christ forever is going to transcend any small drop of glory or, or, or happiness you might find here on earth. should remind us, too, that only God can undo the curse of creation. I mean, every time you hear no green deal or green deal or has passed the new green deal, remember this, that uh, no legislation of man will ever control hurricanes. No deal of man, no vote, no, no, no law, no action of man will stop a tornado. We're talking about God here. And, you know, no man can go to the thermostat of the world and turn it up or turn it down to where they want it to be perfectly. Only God regulates the temperatures. He brings ice ages. He brings times when it's hot. I mean, he's always regulating things for his own purposes and glory. For every believer, God is sanctifying you through the work that he's doing in creation. You know, what are, what are we to do? Well, we're on this pathway of suffering where we have tribulations and trials in our life. Persecution comes into our life. 
We should be like the creation, up on our toes, looking and waiting and craning our necks for the glory that's just coming. Maybe it's today, maybe it's tomorrow, when Christ will return and we'll enter into that glorious state with Him in new bodies, glorified bodies. And may God use that hope uh, for, for us to endure our suffering in this life. There's one passage in Peter that I want to close with. I'm just going to read it to you because it just encapsulates everything that Paul said. So Peter's echoing, you know, amen to Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now here's the glorious expectation we saw. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, in light of the fact that this is what's coming, how should we live as Christians today? We should live in holiness and godliness waiting for the day and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So if you would join with me in your heart this week and throughout the rest of your life, let's be a little bit more on our tiptoes. Let's take the neck and let's crane it a little bit higher and and look over the the spiritual fence of what lies ahead tomorrow, the next day. And let's do so with expectancy like creation does, with expectancy of the coming glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we close and thank you, Lord, for once again meeting with us, encouraging us. Lord, we're all on on a different pathway of where suffering is involved. I know that uh, some here are are suffering greatly at this time. This is the day of tribulation for them. Others are suffering from persecution because of their faith. And Lord, we ask you for for the strength to and the resolve to persevere all the way to the end. But Lord, may we be encouraged as we look ahead and see with with expectation the great glory that lies ahead. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.